guys to drop by. We're doomed. It's a trap. Julie, get us out of here. We would be honored if you would join us. Charming to the dance. This time you have gone too far. I got a bad feeling about this. Hello, what have we here? Red 5 standing by. This is our rescue. You must fear the force around you. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm a Jedi. Like my father before me. I like the sound of that. The force will be with you. Always. Welcome to Dead Boffin Spies, a Star Wars podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and this is a very special episode. More special than any of the previous special episodes. In fact, this episode is going to make the Ewoks and Droids anniversary episodes sound like crap. What makes it so special? The topic we're covering is Journey to Star Wars The Force Awakens Shattered Empire, the four-issue miniseries published by Marvel Comics written by Greg Rucka, with art by Marco Shachetto and assists from Angel Unzueta and Emilio Leso, and colors by Andres Massa. I was so excited for this topic that I had to ask three guests to help me talk about it. My first guest, from the great state of Iowa, my old stomping grounds, is Kyle Benning. Then, from the great state of Vermont, my current stomping grounds, Nathaniel Wayne. And finally, from the Principality of Florida, where I'll probably go to die, and not necessarily in retirement age, the irredeemable shag. Unfortunately, at the very last minute, Nathaniel was called away to read some 90s image comics, so I recorded my segment with him two days later. Instead of just putting Nathaniel's segment after the section with Shag and Kyle, I've decided to splice them all together, grouped by general topic, because, hey, why make it easy for myself? Oh crap! Prepare to jump into hyperspace on my mark! All right, stand by. My first guest is the host of King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, Mr. Kyle Benning. Welcome back to the show, Kyle. My powers have doubled since the last time we met, Count. <laughs> oh, Am I the first person to ever drop that on you? I Like, ever. Like, and not just on me. I, I how, how does that happen when your handle is Count Dracula and you have a Star Wars podcast? <laughs> I just don't so, think so was that was that a uh, Revenge of the Sith quote you just threw? Yes. That's why nobody's ever done it. Right there. That's a okay. self-answering question. All right. First, I have, to, <laughs> I have to poke your regular co-host a little bit here, Shag. So oh, listening Rob? to yeah. his. Oh, yeah. I'm fine with this. Let me let me hold on. Let me get some popcorn. Okay. Listen to the latest episode of Dead Bath and Spies that Rob was on, and he was just waxing J.J. Abrams' car about how. He's taking all these old ideas or old visuals and presenting them in a new way. And he talked about how there have been no outdoor lightsaber fights. Uh-oh. Yet he, in the same episode, said he saw the Phantom Menace nine times. So he apparently forgot about the whole first fight with uh, Darth Maul being on Tatooine. And then obviously Revenge of the Sith, there was a whole lot of lightsaber fights going on outside. But, General okay. Grievous and the Jedi's getting shot by all the, the clone troopers. So Okay, but wait a minute. In his defense, all of those were CGI sets. I don't know about the desert in Phantom Menace, but definitely uh, in Revenge of the they Sith. They were still set uh, outside. 
I think what he means is like real sunlight is what he means rather than soundstage. Well, I mean, obviously the Star Destroyer sitting outside is CGI. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's talk about what we're supposed to do. Because <laughs> I certainly don't want to be defending Rob, that's for sure. Well, folks, my second guest, who has now spoken more than I have in this episode, <laughs> is the Firestorm fan himself, the irredeemable Shag. Welcome back, buddy. Good to be here. Good to be here. Yeah. We've had a string of uh, no-name guests. Glad to finally bring the caliber of the show back up. Thanks. Uh, I'm happy to have both of you on the show because I'm really excited for the topic we're covering tonight, and that topic is Journey to Star Wars The Force Awakens Shattered Empire. The first issue was released on September 9th of this year. After that, the remaining three issues were released weekly in October. Before we dive into the series, I want to hear how you guys heard about the series or what Lucasfilm has dubbed Journey to The Force Awakens, the whole multimedia push. Uh, Shag, how did you hear about it? What did you think about it when you heard about it? Well, at first, I'm pretty sure it was just an instant message that I got from a buddy of mine named Ryan that said, dude, have you heard about this? Uh, that's probably how I found out. But uh, I, I was excited about it because I, I love the EU. I love the comics. I love the novels. You and I have talked about that a great length. Your listeners have heard me ramble on about it. So I was excited. Even though they chunked you know, the old stuff and made it all legends, I was open to trying this out. And some of it has been very satisfying. And Shattered Empire was awesome. Kyle, what'd you think? I've absolutely loved it. The the four issue miniseries was great. Uh, it definitely left me hungry for more. Uh, how I stumbled across it was pretty lackluster as well. Since Marvel came out with their ongoing Star Wars series, uh, my comic book shop they just duplicated that pull list for every Star Wars title that comes out. So I came into my local comic shop and I had three issues waiting for me. And uh, some of the other ones like Vader and Leia and Chewbacca, I said, Nah, I don't. I'll read that in trade, but. I thought, oh yeah, I definitely been looking forward to this one. This is the actual, you know, prequel to the movie, and picked up the first three issues and loved them, and then picked up uh, issue four when that came out, and uh, this has been awesome. Thinking about some of the other content that has come out with this sort of journey to the Force Awakens push, I know you know Shag, you read Aftermath, the novel by Chuck Wendig, which we will discuss in a future episode. And Kyle, you've talked about on your own podcast that you've kind of been obsessed with the new trading cards, the new collectible cards that have come out for the new movie. Yes, very much so. The Journey of the Force Awakens set, about the last, it's a 110-card base set, and I think last 40 cards or so are preview images from the movie, mostly just screen grabs from what we've seen already in the teaser trailer and then the first official trailer. Now, these are the ones that have the framing of the original cars, right? Like the reds and the yellows and the... Yes. Yep. It's very much a throwback to the original vintage set. They're on the, you know, the plain cardboard cardstock. They're not, you know, glossy. The back have like the brown paperback. And those cards were how the names of the new characters were officially released or leaked back like months hmm. ago. There were the images of these cards came out back in September, I think, or before that. No, way, way back over the summer. Yeah, it was like July or so. I started to see, like on Twitter, sponsored ads from Tops popped up for free digital packs. And at first I was like, oh, shit, are they not releasing actual hard copy cards now? Now they're doing all – is everything all digital now? And uh, as I found out, that's not the case, and that's just a bonus thing that now I'm also addicted to. Yeah, the preview uh, image they always showed for that was the, the image of Finn in the desert. Mm -hmm. kind of sweating and that called out his name there so that was the first i ever saw his name referenced 
Yeah, I think they were they were they leaked images from those cards, like scans of those, and that's where they first said Finn, Ray, and Poe Dameron, or and BB-8, and maybe Kylo Ren. So I think at least four of the five new characters were named on those cards. So I just had quick overall kind of thought on the journey of the Force Awakens. It's pretty exciting the banner they put together here with this comic. As we said, aftermath, the Lost Stars, mm-hmm. the kids' books, which I haven't read. I mean, it, I felt the hype engine working. And it was working in a good way. Like, I got excited. It legitimately got me more excited for the film. I am. I feel like I'm more invested because of the time I've spent on this. And I, I think it's also great that Kyle referred to you as lackluster. Uh, <laughs> I think that's probably a, a, an important piece to take away from this. What? What did I say lackluster? <laughs> I mentioned how I heard about Force Awakens, Journey Force Awakens. And you said you, and I referred to Ryan, and you said you also heard in a lackluster fashion. So I'm just saying you being told on the internet because the person who spends the most time as a marketing person whoring himself out on the internet was slow <laughs> in the uptake. It's pretty lackluster on your end there, Chief. <laughs> I was going to say cut this part, but now you got to leave it in, Ryan. <laughs> this episode is going to be about 20 minutes long, and then it's going to be two hours of like outtakes and extras <laughs> after the credits. <laughs> Just all of this. The shield is down. Commence attack on the Death Star's main reactor. We're on our way. Red group, gold group, all fighters follow me. <laughs> Told you they'd do it. <laughs> the first issue featured a cover by Phil Noto that recreates the final shot of Return of the Jedi with the heroes assembled in the Ewok village celebrating their victory over the Emperor and the second Death Star. Issue 1 starts right in the middle of the Battle of Endor, with the Rebel fleet engaging Imperial fighters in the shadow of the Death Star. We're introduced to our protagonist, Shara Bay, an A-Wing pilot assigned to Green Squadron. We see Shara's squad fly escort for the Millennium Falcon just before it makes its final attack on the Death Star's main reactor. Then Shara attempts to shoot down an Imperial shuttle evacuating the doomed space station, only to discover that Rebel hero Luke Skywalker is flying the shuttle. Moments later, the Death Star goes kablooey. In the aftermath, Shara is granted permission to fly down to the forest moon, where Han Solo and the Rebel Strike Team are celebrating the victory with Endor's indigenous Ewoks. Shara finds Han Solo yelling at Lando over the loss of the Falcon sensor dish, and she asks them where she might find the Pathfinders from his strike team. Lando tries to flirt, but Shara is only interested in finding one man at the party and we find out that the man is her husband, Sergeant Kess Dameron. That night, Shara and Kess sleep together, but the following morning sees the war is not over. Han Solo tells the Pathfinders there is another Imperial base on the other side of the moon that needs to be taken out. Shara volunteers to pilot the transport shuttle. The Rebel Commandos take out the base and decrypt a lot of military transmissions, revealing that while the leadership may be dead, the Empire is not going to surrender. The second issue begins on the Star Destroyer Torment, where Captain Duvat is greeted by a mysterious messenger with a recorded message from the late Emperor Palpatine himself. The Emperor orders Duvat to begin Operation Cinder. Cut to the planet Sturdick IV, now 17 days after the Battle of Endor, where Shara Bay's squad fights to liberate another world from an empire that refuses to accept the fact that they lost. After the battle, Shara's squad leader, Lu Lo, basically tells her she's been working too hard, and if she's not going to retire to spend time with her son, Poe Dameron, then he'll assign her to an easier flying gig. A few days later, Shara is tasked with flying Princess Leia on a secret diplomatic mission. Their destination, we learn, is Naboo. Leia meets with Queen Saruna in an attempt to woo Naboo to the side of the Alliance and their fledgling New Republic. 
However, Nabu might not be able to help the Alliance as the Star Destroyer Torment arrives and unleashes its plan to destroy the planet. The third issue finds Shara's husband, Kes Dameron, helping Han Solo take down an ISB fortress on Tehran. After the Pathfinders fight their way inside the base, C-3PO taps into the computer system and learns that the Empire is attacking Naboo. Kess's wife, Shara Bey, happens to be on Naboo along with Princess Leia, who was trying to recruit the Emperor's homeworld into the New Republic when the Empire attacked. The Star Destroyer Torment releases an orbital satellite array that is wreaking havoc on the local climate system, causing hurricanes, flash floods, wildfires, enough meteorological strife to wipe out every living person on the planet. Presumably Gungans, too. Although Palpatine had the planet demilitarized after the Clone Wars, Queen Saruna takes Leia and Shara down to the long-forgotten hangar with three working starfighters. Shara, Leia, and Queen Saruna take the fighters into orbit and engage the Empire by themselves. Even if they can destroy the satellites, it looks like the TIE fighters are going to overwhelm and kill them. But Lando Calrissian arrives with a rebel fleet stopping the Star Destroyer and saving Nebu. When the fourth issue begins, three months have passed since the Battle of Endor, but Admiral Akbar informs the rebel forces that the Empire is far from wiped out. For Shara Bey and her family, however, the war is over. Or it will be once her exit paperwork is cleared. Until then, she's got one more mission. She is approached by a mysterious astromech droid and brought to the R2 unit's master, none other than Commander Luke Skywalker. The two of them take an Imperial shuttle and fly to one of the Empire's secret bases on Vatine, where Shara impersonates an ISB agent getting her and Luke inside the base. In the secret lab, they find two samples of a tree that once grew in the heart of the Jedi Temple on Coruscant. The Emperor stole them, Luke has come to take them back. He and Shara grab the trees and fight their way back to the shuttle. In the aftermath, Luke tells Shara he didn't expect to find two trees, he keeps one for himself and gives her the other. The final image of the series is Shara and her husband, Kess, planting the tree on a forest world where they have chosen to settle and raise their son. Overall thoughts of the story in general? I absolutely dug it, and it just left me uh, hungry for more. It's kind of a great it's kind of showcase of everything from the past six movies. I mean, there's Naboo, obviously, that's more of a, a prequel world. Uh, we even get a little Darth Maul image in there. Obviously, the, the reflections on stuff happening in Return of the Jedi, dealing with all the, the fallout from Endor, and the art is just absolutely gorgeous. I would I would love to see the original art versus the colored too, because the, the colors are fantastic. And I'm just kind of curious what the actual breakdown is there, kind of the collaboration. I'm curious how much the background how much the detail is purely done in color versus line work. I would like to see some of the original pencils. I think Marco Shoshetto penciled and inked it. Shag, what did you think of the story? This, this, you guys started on the art. This guy's amazing. Just breathtaking artwork. I wish I could read a monthly comic from this guy. Do we know? Is he doing any monthly books? Because I'd he, be interested. I, I don't know what he's doing. Actually, I think I think he and Rucka are doing another Star Wars project in the future. I have no idea what it is. But I think they were working together on something. They had worked previously. Yeah, I remember them. seeing. Sorry, I, oh. I remember seeing that uh, January something's supposed to hit. That's both of them back on Star Sweet. Wars, and now I can't remember what the title was, but it it was January. Yeah, well, I'm in. Um, they had previously worked together on a Punisher series back in like 2011 or 2012. So yeah, Rucka and Shishetto have worked together, and they they work pretty well together. 
as far as big picture goes, I mean, given that it's Rucka, we you know we should have gone in and knowing that it was going to be a strong female lead, right? <laughs> should have realized that before I even picked up the comic. Because at first I was confused. I didn't know whether this was was Shara's story. Is, it, is that how you say it? Shara? Shara or Shara? I'm not sure. Okay, I didn't know whether it was Shara's story or her husband's story, Cass. I wasn't really sure because there's there's some scenes with Cass and some scenes with her and. It almost feels like it's a little unsure at some points, mm-hmm. but I think all the cast scenes really do in you know inform story plots with uh, Shara's story. So it's it's more hers. But um, really, enjoy- in fact, I did something I've never done before with a Marvel comic, which was you know these come with the free download codes. Mm-hmm. I've never bothered to download a comic I already owned. I was like, well, I, I own it; it's in my hand. I don't care. Well, I went ahead and actually used the codes and downloaded all of them to the Marvel app so that I don't ever have to dig through my long boxes again to read these because I have the I, I suspect I will want to read these again or have other people read them. That's how much I enjoyed it. Uh, we're here with Nathaniel Wayne from the Council of Geeks. What was your overall impression of the Shattered Empire miniseries? My overall impression, it started out great. Uh, that first issue, as far as I'm concerned, is gold. And it went downhill from there. Okay. The main thing is that the first issue is, and, and keep in mind, I'm coming at this from the perspective of someone who never got into the expanded universe. Because, you know, for reasons we've actually talked about before on this podcast, I have an inherent disinterest in stuff set after Return of the Jedi. So coming at it from the perspective of someone who's, in, who's just more skeptical from the get-go, you know, on expanded universe stuff in general, what this first issue is is exactly what I want out of anything that's additional that you're adding into from the movies, which is you're giving me something that I know, but from a perspective that I haven't seen before. And not in a, you didn't even know this person was there. Wait, these were people who had to have been there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know something like Green Squadron, if, if, you, if you have seen... Return of the Jedi way too many times, like I have. <laughs> Green Squadron even gets called out when they first show up. You know, Red Leader standing by, Green Leader standing by, and we never hear from Green Group again after that in the movie. But they still get named. So to connect it to that, it's like, oh, well, I remember they were there, but I never knew what they were doing. Well, now I know. And that sort of expansion, this sort of, I guess for lack of a better term, horizontal expansion, mm-hmm. this sort of lateral move, I really like and I really enjoy. I just love that. I love this sort of filling in of something that I know with new information and and new characters because we just get so much nice things filling out this event that I already know so well. That having been said, and this is probably the only time I'm going to bring up the art because for the most part, like you guys, I agree the art is stellar in this thing, except... And I'm sorry, but the very first image of this thing, Darth Vader and Luke fighting in front of the Emperor, is horrible. It is so bad. The body position these two are in, they, they never fought like this. Neither of them. This is completely not even close to being representative of the way they held their lightsabers, the way they fought, the way that they were positioned at any point in that fight. The, the perspective is wonky, so the proportions look weird. It's a bad, bad image. It's the only bad image in the entire four issues, but it's really bad. I never really thought about it until you pointed it out, and I think part of it is because it's a double-page sort of spread. And you're right, that is the first image. That is the whole left-hand side. 
and they are in a weird, crazy posture that just that doesn't look right. Like only one hand is on their lightsabers, and the other hands are in these weird kind of ninja jazz hands poses. It's it is yeah. crazy, but I think it to me it felt so big and expressionistic because we're sort of looking at it from a low angle, and then cutting into the image, you get this X-wing and it's it's sort of melding into the space battle around the death star i like that aspect of it i like i like how the x-wing is kind of cutting in on the image but that ah to to me it just kind of it, they sort of bled together in a sort of scene that just it's not necessarily realistic or not necessarily reality it's just sort of the swirl of the battle and i kind of forgive the way they look during this lightsaber fight you're right if i just take that image alone on itself it is really weird (laughs) it's just a weird looking image that's like why would you draw them like that you're right you could have photo referenced any image of them fighting in the Death Star from Return of the Jedi, and you never, ever would have found an image like that. No, not even close. Um, but it didn't take me out of the story. It didn't. It, it wasn't jarring to me. Let's talk about the two characters, particularly Shara and Kess. I mean, as you said, if if readers, if you've ever read something by Greg Rucka, you ought to know that he really likes strong female protagonists, um, and that's certainly what we get here. Uh, Shara is an A-wing pilot. She is part of Green Squadron. We meet her right at the beginning, and and it's a it's a cool setup. We see the Battle of Endor, and we hear bits of familiar dialogue. We hear things like you know, concentrate fire on the Super Star Destroyer. We see them you know escorting Lando into the Death Star, but they're not going all the way in. She's like, let them take the glory. We've got other stuff to do. Um, yeah, that opening double splash page is just gorgeous. That kind of yeah. montage you see. Kind of like the the second trench run battle with the A-Wings and TIE Fighters going on around a Star Destroyer. And then, obviously, the big Luke Vader lightsaber fight in front of the Emperor's throne room there. It's just an awesome compilation. I don't know about you, Ryan, but I actually had a concern during this scene. I was worried what direction it was going when I first read it. She's flying an A-Wing. They're going into the the Star Destroyer. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, are they about to bump, um, was it Tycho Checo? Is that his name? Uh, Tycho Selchu or something. Selchu, thank you. Yeah. I thought, I was like, uh-oh, I think they're about to bump Tycho from uh, continuity, but uh, thankfully she did not go inside the Death Star with, with the Falcon, so I was a little worried that, you know, admittedly it's all legends, but as much as they don't have to go out of their way to contradict it, I'd rather they didn't. That's a character from the X-Wing novels, by the way, folks. You know, the sort of ironically, in Return of the Jedi, one of the A-Wing pilots was a female actress who was overdubbed with a man's voice. <laughs> like, you can actually, like... You can That's terrible. It. Yeah, oh, no, I know. I have no idea why they did it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> one of the A-Wing pilots in the green, like, flight suit in that movie was a female actress who they overdubbed with a male's voice. Jeez. I cannot explain why they did that. What I really liked about this was it actually answered a long-standing question that I've had, which was, when Luke is flying out of the Death Star in an Imperial shuttle, is he at the danger of friendly fire? Of, like, some some rebel forces saying, hey, that's probably a high-ranking Imperial officer making a break for it. I'm going to shoot him down, make sure he doesn't get away. And we kind of get that address, that that's exactly what she does. And and she makes the point. She's like, the shuttle is a, you know, a sloth. How is it moving this nimbly? So we sort of get that subtle thing that, yeah, Luke is still a really damn good pilot, even though we don't see it that much. <laughs> yep. So, uh, so what did you think after that, once they get down to the the surface of Endor and the celebration, the victory party? I, I really liked it. It was actually kind of... Uh 
answered some questions I've always kind of had, and it kind of shows how legit some of these, you know, indoor troopers actually were in the Rebels. Mm-hmm. You never really get a whole lot of background. I mean, did these guys have formal, uh, you know, like Imperial Academy training or something like that? I mean, it always just seemed a little odd that, I mean, Han is essentially nothing more than a smuggler, and all of a sudden, you know, he's a high-ranking official in the Rebel Army. When uh, Empire opens up, I mean, obviously a lot's insinuated has happened in between there, but it's kind of like a, how did this guy go from being in it for the money and getting ready to take off to all of a sudden he's kind of running the show there a little bit? Mm-hmm. And so he kind of throws a little bit of speculation of how well-trained some of these troopers are that he's leading, and it's kind of nice to see kind of that special ops training and background kind of imprinted on him then. Another classic Rucka-ism be the emphasis on you know, the paramilitary nature and getting some of the, the jargon and the technical lingo of these guys, making sure that they look well-equipped, well-trained, well like efficient fighting forces. I was just going to share, when you, you mentioned your scene earlier on that got answered, how did Luke get out of there, that you've always wondered that? Mm-hmm. I've always wanted to see the conversation between Lando and Han <laughs> about, the, about the Millennium Falcon dish. Because me and my friends have, you know, speculated that about a bunch of times. Like, you know, how did Han react when he heard about that? Like, what? You know, after not, after the whole not a scratch speech. And uh, I get to see it right here. It's wonderful. It makes me so happy. Still waiting for the scene of why are you wearing my clothes? <laughs> <laughs> That's all they had. That's all you had in the locker on the Falcon. <laughs> and then we get the sexy sex. Yes, we do. Uh, and I think we all, the first time we read that, assumed this was the conception of Poe Dameron. We're seeing the day that the new hero is being conceived, um, which was really cool. I liked that idea that there would be an entire generation of of heroes for, we meet from the new movies who were, you know, conceived in the afterglow of the Battle of Endor. It makes sense. I mean, I, I talked about this on another show recently, so sorry for a little bit of repeat conversation. But, you know, when, when 9-11 happened, yeah. oh. there were a tremendous amount of babies born nine months later. I didn't know about this until recently. I was talking to somebody who had a 9-11 baby, mm-hmm. is what they call them. And this would be the same kind of thing. You know, be Battle of Endor baby, you know, or Battle of Endor Boom. Mm, that doesn't sound right. Baby Boom. Death Star Baby. But yeah. By the way, did you mention in your synopsis that these are the parents of Poe Dameron from Force Awakens? I don't remember because I frankly wasn't listening to you. I did. I mentioned the, that his name is Kess Dameron and that they, that, I mean, the, the child Poe Dameron is mentioned. Okay. So. What did you think of her as our main character? I like her. I like her for a number of reasons. I mean, the first is, um, and you guys kind of brought this up, we've never had in the um, original trilogy a female pilot, or at least that was allowed to be voiced by a woman. But there's never been any reason given that there wouldn't be. So just that by itself, that it's a female pilot, and there's no particular attention drawn to that. She's just there doing her thing, and she's good at it. I like that. And, And I also sort of like, and this sort of, gets into the later issues a little bit, sort of the inversion of the stereotype. Because the stereotype would be, the husband would be the one, I have to go out and do my duty. I have to keep fighting. So to have it be her, and I mean, he's got a little bit of that going too, because it's not like he's sitting at home. Mm-hmm. But because we're focusing on her, and she does just keep going back in the field, that that is a kind of a subversion of what you would expect if if you were told a man and a woman both involved in a war effort and you know they're having trouble getting out. You would assume the guy's the one who keeps going back, mm-hmm. and it's not. And I just I I I like those kinds of subversions, especially when you don't draw attention to it, but you just do it. Okay, now uh, I haven't looked at any casting stuff. Uh, Shara and Kess are they cast in the? Oh, la la la! Don't want to know. Don't want to know. Well, no. The reason I ask is 
Poe Dameron is whiter than I am in that movie. And <laughs> his parents are both portrayed as fairly dark-complected in this. Uh, see, I mean, Oscar Isaac is Guatemalan. And I so maybe it's just like the way he's been lit or the way they've been shooting him so far. He, he seems a little bit whiter, but I think he is supposed to be of color. I mean, he is... I, I think he is supposed to be darker complected than Han and Luke, okay. and it just might it might just not be. I don't know, but okay. I mean, I really like the colors in this, but that's just something that kind of stood out to me. Is yeah. I mean, especially looking at Kess, what he really reminded me of is uh, Jango Fett from the prequels. Mm, yeah, I can sure. see that. Yeah. I have all these uh, Journey of the Force Awakens cards, and I'm looking at all these Poe Dameron ones, and he's pastier than I am, so it's kind of like, what the hell's going on here? He doesn't but, have the Iowa farm tan, but... Uh. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, we started this off, we've kind of started now to take it apart, uh, the issue scene by scene, but just stepping back from the characters, where we started the, this piece of the conversation, mm-hmm. I really like the character of Shara. She's very strong-willed. When she's on mission, she's focused on the mission. Um, when she's off mission, she is focused on the future and family and, and what's going to happen and all that kind of business. But when she's in there, when she's in the zone, she's she's very much as good a character as a Corrin Horn mm-hmm. or or anyone else. I feel as invested in this character. I, I don't feel like I know her incredibly well. Like I I know that there's a lot of thoughts about what happens after the war, uh, but not necessarily the intricate details of her. Details of her. But I do feel like she's a great action hero, and I'm and I'm you know I'm invested in her. It's worth also mentioning the the overarching theme of the whole story. I mean, every issue focuses on kind of this concept of when does the war end for an individual? Right. When is it time to stop fighting? Right. And that that's reoccurring throughout all of this. And I think that might be the one limitation of the character is we don't see her not fighting until the last page of the series. Mm-hmm. Like really when we even when we see her with Kess, she's still she's still a soldier. Uh, we don't see her with her child. We don't really see her never on mission all that much like she's always kind of and that's that's there's that one one morning yeah there's certainly that which is fleeting um and even like her squad leader commander lulo or captain lulo whoever he is um the duros um he he kind of points out he's like you know you you need to stop you you need to you know the the war can be over for you because you've got something else to look forward to i was actually like like we were saying, when the first issue came out, I think everybody assumed that that was the night that Poe Dameron was conceived. We get to the second issue, and they reveal that, no, she's already got a son named Poe, and it hasn't been nine months later. It's only been like a week or two later. And at first, that was kind of disappointing, but it also solved a bit of a problem, because at this point, once you know that the child is already born, either of them could have died in the rest of the series. Like, yeah. like I was, I was suspecting that one or both of them might die in this series. To get back to the other question, I mean, I, I don't anticipate that we would see them in the Force Awakens. I've got no hint of that, but it might be interesting if that just sort of like kind of fed into Poe Dameron's history. What did you think when you found out that these were the parents of Poe Dameron, the character that Oscar Isaac is playing in the new movie? My first immediate thought was, which one's gonna die? <laughs> Because I mean, like you guys, by the end of the first issue, I made the assumption, oh, they're conceiving him. But then once we get the timeline going later, you realize, oh, no, he's already born, which means either one of them could die. So I spent the next three issues trying to figure out who was going to die. And honestly, I'm stunned they both lived. Because in that last issue, not only are they both expendable, but they're a week away from retirement. 
That's like po- that's like pointing a bullseye on the back of your head. <laughs> it's it's every red flag. It is I every know. it's every trope. It's my mind actually flashes back to the what was it? Hot shots? Was that the Charlie Sheen spoof of the Top Gun movie? Uh, there's, yeah, there's like a character. His nickname is Dead Meat, mm-hmm. and all of the things that he does. He's like, oh yeah, I just got our life insurance policy. Oh yeah, my wife just found out she's pregnant. Oh yeah, uh-huh. all of these good things just happened to me. Well, I've just got this one last mission to fly, and then everything and, is solid. And then I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> <Barry>. <laughs> Have you come to watch me fly? Oh, there was a meltdown at the plant, so they gave me the afternoon off. Oh, terrific. Oh, good news. We just closed escrow in our little dream house. Wonderful. When do we move in? Tuesday. I've got the kids dripping the asbestos off the pipes right now. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Things just couldn't be better for us. I'm so blessed. Oh, your life insurance forms came for you to sign. Oh. Oh, my mirror. Huh. I'll get another pen. No need. I'll sign it when I get back. Well, you know best. Honey, you know that global warming problem? I've discovered how we can reverse it. Tell me. No, not now, lovey bumpers. There'll be plenty of time for that later. (laughs) And my investigation into the assassination of JFK? You found the evidence you were looking for. Yes, I have proof. It's right here in my pocket. It's big, honey, really big. It goes all the way to the White House. Do you want me to hold it for you? No, it'll be safe right here. I'm in a jet. What could go wrong? Dead meat. We just couldn't be any more perfectly happy. Yeah, so, but I, again, I, I kind of like the subversion of it because they give us all the red flags and they both live. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's neat. And yeah. again, not drawing attention to it, just doing it. Mm-hmm. They are given their happy ending, which is nice. So. All right. Well, I was, I was going to save this for the end, but all right, I'll bring it up now. Sort of, it's half speculation, half interpretation of themes and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And this this kind of covers the whole series. Sorry, folks. I know we're kind of talking more issue by issue, but the way they've set these two characters up, both Kess and Shara, mm-hmm. is they have set them up as heroes of the rebellion. These folks are going to be celebrated, mm-hmm. um, and not only that, they are connected to the Star Warriors. Yeah, if you know what I mean by the Star Warriors. Well, meaning ex- Luke, explain um, that. Explain the term. Okay. The Star Warriors is a term that, as far as I know, came from the old Marvel comics. Um, that's where I learned it from. But where it, the Star Warriors would be your main characters of the, of the original trilogy. Luke, Han, Leia, Chewie, maybe Lando. That would be your Star Warriors. And throughout this series, you know, uh, Shara flies Leia to Naboo and fights with her side by side. And, you know, in the, in the Naboo fighters up in, up in space, she flies Luke on his shuttle. Her husband, Kess, goes on a special mission with Han, and he's the one who gets the, the quote unquote, the door open for them to get in and invade and, and get to the information bunker they were trying to get to. So they really do become celebrated. In fact, there's one scene where Admiral Akbar and General uh, Nadine are, are like praising them, and it looks like they're talking directly to Poe, um, not Poe, um, Castameron. Yes. Not entirely sure. That may have just been the way the panel was drawn. But either way, they are heroes of the rebellion, and they are also connected directly with the Star Wars. So that seems like, maybe I'm reading more than I should, but it seems like that's set up really for Poe. Mm-hmm. So that what the dramatic theme to me would be to carry on to Poe there is one of two things. Either he has something to live up to because his parents were heroes of the rebellion. And so there's a lot of pressure on him yeah. to live up to that. And maybe that's sort of his story. 
is that he's trying to live up to the legend of his parents or, unfortunately, some sort of fall from grace, mm-hmm. which could be here's these great pillars of the rebellion. Their son went down the wrong path. Or I guess a third option could be his parents are killed by Kylo Ren or something, and that puts a personal stake in there for him. You know, whatever it might be. Because people be, need to be able to see the movie without giving a crap about this comic book. I mean, Lucasfilm did not make the movie to make sure people read the comic first. So Poe's development has got to be such a way that they describe it in the movie quickly. It could simply be those things I described. Yeah, that makes me wonder how much of this series is going to be touched on in the opening crawl. Maybe the, the major takeaway or what I'd I feel like is the the real big event uh, going into Force Awakens coming out of this series, and that being the the two Jedi trees. We'll come back to those trees in a little bit. I, I do want to kind of mention, get stay on this idea about Poe, because I think another potential option for for what it means that his parents were so connected to Star Wars is it might have something to do with him feeling like a legacy hero in the what whatever the New Republic is or the Resistance. And it might give him that sort of familial connection to Leia if she is still a leader in this in this government or this military, and she kind of sees him like almost like a nephew, or you know, mm-hmm. like I, I was I was close friends with your with your mother. You know, she saved my life. We fought together. We bled together. And now, you know, I'm kind of seeing you coming up, and she, you know, she might be, she might have sort of been a, a kind of a benefactor for him, like a godmother, kind of like looking out for him as he was coming up in the ranks. I mean, we might never hear or get any indication of who his parents are in this movie, but we might just kind of see a ghost of that in his relationship with Leia and maybe Han or Luke if he sees them. And that's kind of, I guess, where I was going with what I was saying it was meaning more like. All it would really take would be like the Ben Kenobi one one throwaway line, which, you know, I fought with your father in the Clone Wars. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever. I mean, that's all it took to friggin' create the expanded universe. Boom, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, so that's kind of what I was envisioning here would be like a Leia being like, you know, Poe, I'm I'm disappointed at what you did in your mission. Your parents, you know, I'm very I was very close with your parents, they'd be disappointed in you. Or something like that's where I was going with the living up to the legacy kind of thing. It would just be one or two throwaway lines that don't tell you anything about the comic. Because the comic is supposed to be separate, but it's fun for us who want to follow the journey. But it's not needed for anyone else. So that's kind of, that's in line with what I was thinking. Alright, let's look at uh, let's look at issues 2 and 3, because we have this major set piece in the middle, which is the Empire Wait. attacking Naboo. Wait, two things! Oh. I have to mention issue 1. One, uh, I just love the Ewoks in the shuttle. I think that was hilarious. <laughs> they kept flip-touching things, and she was getting pissed off. But more importantly, is the last page of issue number 1. This is probably... One of the best constructed pages as far as the way it delivered in the imagery of any Star Wars comic I've read that Marvel's put out so far. In fact, it's so much so that I took this issue tonight to my wife and showed her the last page and said, this page tells you everything you need to know from the end of Return of Jedi to The Force Awakens. It's simply, what's her name, Shara. Mm-hmm. She says, you guys were in there a while. And Han comes out saying, yeah, there was a lot of data in their computers, a lot of comm traffic, a lot of plans. It's not over yet. And Han just, you know, he's got a determined look. Chewie's there with him. You know, uh, the uh, Kess is in the background looking a little apprehensive. They look nervous. Mm-hmm. And I showed it to my wife, and she's like, yeah, that, that tells me everything I need to know. She, she got it from that page, and I think it's a fantastic page. I imagine they killed quite a few Imperials in there, too. So the Ewoks probably uh, dined pretty well that night. <laughs> okay, I do, I do want to come back to that. But, Kyle, um, any other, like, highlights or favorite moments from the first issue? I, I really do like that last page, like uh, Shag said, and then just kind of the whole battle progression, the last three or four pages leading up to that are awesome. There's another really sweet kind of 
two-page splash that's got uh, two horizontal smaller panels on the top and bottom as well. Just great, great battle scenes. I can't praise this art enough. It's fantastic. All right. So the one moment that I need to go back to can chat you a little. Or, I know Kyle, where you're going. Kyle, I know where you you're going. To this um, it, during the Ewok celebration, <laughs> this, this yes. bottom panel we get we get the pilots, we get the Spec Force troopers, we get three PO. Everybody, part you see the Ewoks banging their drums on the stormtrooper helmets, and there's just there's a couple of different word balloons kind of floating around, uh, and somebody saying look sweet, but you should have seen them kind of referring to what the Ewoks are kind of done. And then the next one is, like, in the middle of a question, what is this? I don't even know what I'm eating. I'll have another. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, buddy. What you're eating is a a Corellian Stormtrooper. Oh, Oh, I love that. That's just... Hey, they gotta eat. That's so good. There's a guy out there, a big Star Wars fan that God, I, I think where I would have heard him would have been on uh, a really old episode of Star Wars Monthly Monday, and his like whole claim to fame is the the Ewoks eat people thing. <laughs> he's that's right. what he's known around out, around online. Whenever people start uh, bashing on Return of the Jedi or the Ewoks, he just lets loose on Ewoks eat people. <laughs> it's very true. He's absolutely right. All right. Well, let's move on to uh, issues two and three, where we have this major kind of set piece: this battle over Naboo. This surprised me because from everything that I've seen about the new movie uh, and kind of what this this ramp up has been doing, it has all been nostalgia and looking back to the classic trilogy. And I really thought that they were just going to kind of ignore, not not disavow, not retcon anything about the prequels, but just not address them. And right away, we're like, nope, we're going back to Naboo. We're going back to the Emperor's homeworld. We're getting all of this visual iconography. We see the city. We see a familiar-looking queen with the whole weird geisha makeup effect. And I was really, really impressed with how well it was handled. And I thought just Rucka had a great handle on it. Um, And it it really kicked off in issue three when they go down to that hangar. Mm-hmm. The climactic moment from the Phantom Menace, which I didn't think I ever needed to see again. <laughs> Except- you, mean, you mean where Darth Maul having the high ground didn't really mean shit? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's very important. But just this moment where they open the doors to the hangar and Shara walks in with the queen and her security chief and Leia stops at the door. And she says, I feel cold. And we just get this superimposed image of Darth Maul's eyes. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, this is the coolest thing Darth Maul has ever done in my estimation. (laughs) Well, my my question about... Sorry, go ahead. More than the movie. I just, I saw this movie and I was like, this, this moment, this one little panel. And I was like, wow, that like almost took my breath away. Well, one thing I'm curious about it is Clone Wars... It's supposed to be one of the few things that's still in from the expanded universe. Oh. In that, Darth Maul came back. He was not dead. So I'm kind of curious what his spirit image is doing trapped there. I still dug it. His, um, his, essence, was tr- his essence was bonded to his legs. There you go. <laughs> his, his legs are still in the basement of Naboo's. That's now. fair. That's fair. <laughs> no, that was something that really took me by surprise and something I was uh, pleasantly surprised with as well. I mean, I have some issues with the the prequels, as we have talked about before, Ryan. But I think I'm probably higher on them than either one of you. Right. Most and, people uh, on the planet. One, I wouldn't go that far, but uh, 
uh, one thing I've kind of touched on in some of my Star Wars episodes that I've done has been how, you know, nostalgia based all their marketing has been, even, you know, with the trading cards and stuff, they've kind of glossed over the prequels, even in the trading card set, the, the way it works is they give like a 10 to 20 card kind of story synopsis breakdown of the original trilogy. And then the prequels only get like five to 10 cards. So they're <laughs> definitely shorthanded in the card set and everything just seems to be, you know, marketed around the original trilogy, getting back to that. And so I was kind of the same opinion of you that it just kind of seems like they were glossing over the prequels. So it was a pleasant surprise to see him touch on it here and especially issue three. Now, as far as Leia feeling the sense of Darth Maul, mm-hmm. I like you guys, I thought that was incredibly cool. I mean, it was like a catch my breath moment. Like, oh, wow. And then I step back from it and I, and I, I've really been trying to look at this thing from a story perspective, like the way you write a story and why you write a story and why you put scenes, why you put certain scenes in a story. In that particular scene, it made me wonder, was that just a throwaway? Is that just something cool for us to literally gasp at? Or is that supposed to mean something more? Does that imply that Leia's becoming more sensitive to the Force and we're going to see something in Episode 7 where Leia's you know, further along in her Force training? Or she abandoned it? Has she never done anything with it? That, that kind of stuck with me. Is, was this a purposeful scene or was this just a cool moment? I hope it's both. My, my hope after I saw that was I thought this was an acknowledgement that she is Force-sensitive, that she does have the power, and I hope we will see some of that in The Force Awakens in the new trilogy. It wasn't an immediate drop-off, but the, the second issue, you know, it opens well with some cool action. You know, we get this, this sort of little glimpse onto the Empire side, which was something I kind of wish we'd seen more of. With the guy going, uh, the Emperor's not dead, it's propaganda. And, and I, I kind of wanted to see more of what is the Empire doing to continue to prop itself up. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wish we'd seen a little bit more of that. I think where things started to dip for me is in the second half of the second issue, which kind of it rang a familiar bell in a prequels sense, like in a phantom menace opening crawl sense you know trade negotiations and taxation just because you know we're going to naboo well why is there a dire circumstance no we're just gonna see if they'll be on our side oh oh okay i mean you know something's gonna go wrong but the fact that their reason for going is something so mundane just sort of rang the bell of that sort of phantom menace we're just going to help negotiate this trade dispute now that said i love the moment with Leia where she is writing condolences. Mm-hmm. I, I think that as, as much as the first issue is my favorite issue, I think that moment is my favorite moment in this series. I love that. I think it's also fair to say, I think we all agree that Op- Operation Cinder um, was basically just specifically to wipe out the Gungans, right? I mean, there doesn't seem to be any other purpose in Operation Cinder, but that critical, critical thing that, you know, Palpatine was not going to let go. <laughs> No, it was it was a favor to Jar Jar Binks, who is a dark Don't Sith Lord himself. Don't finish that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> right, I have a legitimate Naboo question, and I, and I, I paid attention to it when I reread it again today, and I still can't answer this. Does Leia know she's that her family's from Naboo? That I is something I wondered as well. There's no hint. Does she does she know that she is essentially a royal heiress of a previous queen? I wondered that as well. An elected royal heiress. <laughs> well. She would have, she would have found out about 
40 days before this that she was, or, or less than that, like 20 days before this, that Darth Vader was her father. And we've still never seen her process that. Has she found out that Darth Vader was Anakin Skywalker? Mm, yeah, the, I, I have no idea what she talked to Luke about. We've never seen that moment. We've never seen them. And <laughs> I, I like to think there's a private conversation where they're discussing it. And they say, you know that time that we were on that planet alone in that tent all night? We should never talk about this again. <laughs> that, yeah. She, hey, she knew. She always knew. Oh, damn! So that's how it is in their family. <laughs> Well, I mean, she said it, even though she... You know, give him a break. It's a, a it's big not, one on. It's not the weirdest thing that has happened in their family. <laughs> <laughs> All right, two more quick comments about issue two. The messenger that came to see the uh, the Imperial in the beginning? Yep. At first, I thought that was a dude. And I was like, boy, he's pretty cool looking. So and then I started wondering, is he a robot? I wasn't sure. Or a droid, I should say. Mm-hmm. But then if you jump forward to issue four... Yes. You see that being made. Yes, there's a so whole assembly line. Yeah, so it's actually like the Emperor has these droids that go around with very human-like features, though. I mean, they make fists, they open their hands, all kinds of stuff. Um, very well, humanoid. You know, he he has a past of loving droids and using them for his <laughs> sinister plots. Very nice observation. Good point. <laughs> yeah, let's let's mention the, the messenger, because I... I loved the look of that thing. As soon as I it walked in, I was like, okay, sort of like Imperial Guard. It's got this, like, mirrored helmet thing that, oh, we just see, like, the Emperor's face giving a pre-recorded message. Just, oh, all of that. I was just, I was like, yes, I want to see more of this thing. And I even kind of had this, and, and I, like you, Shaggy, at first I was like, this seems like it could be a droid, but maybe it's not. And I kind of, I, I went into this weird place where I was starting to speculate. I was like, maybe this is what Snoke is in The Force Awakens. Like, this, maybe, mm. maybe we're going to see that Snoke is just is just like this weird little thing with like this face, then it's just Andy Serkis mo-capping the Emperor's old face or something Ooh. like that. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, this could be really cool. And then we get to that moment in episode four. I was like, oh, it's just a mass-produced droid. It's just a con. <laughs> it's just the Emperor not, like tricking his own people. Well, I think this guy knows the Emperor's dead. I think he knows it's a message from the afterlife. Don't yeah. you? Well, I don't know. He, the, well, the one guy, you know, he says we are on a special mission from the Emperor, and then the guy kind of questions him. Well, the Emperor's dead. He's, That's treason. So I don't know. I didn't know how to take yeah. that scene. That's a good point. I'm I'm rereading the text now, and you're right. At no point does the messenger confirm the Emperor's gone. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. Okay. Yeah. He. I mean, the the, the captain says it, it's all propaganda and. Well, I just figured that was him. Exactly, that could, that could just be. But I, I kind of wonder if, if he believed. Like, I, that's that's a story that I do kind of want to see is when some of these guys do think that the fight is lost, when they just give up, when they're like, no, this isn't worth fighting, and and how the empire, the remnants would just fracture, and they would just start fighting for themselves, and these captains would just want to take over their ship and just go off to some planet and just say, I'm just going to settle this thing and not not play a part of this war anymore. Like, that's that's a story I wouldn't mind seeing at some point. That's kind of, well, uh, Aftermath has some of that, but uh, not not the retiring, but the right. taking taking my own destiny here. I'm kind of curious just how, how many people, I guess, in the entire Star Wars universe, but especially in the Imperial ranks, know that Palpatine was, you know, a Dark Lord of the Sith, honestly. I mean, going back to the first Star Wars movie, when you got the tag... Uh, that's yeah, run his tag. mouth to Vader. Yeah, yeah, tag, yeah. You know, uh, 
obviously, I, I would guess by his super mouthy <laughs> comments that he doesn't know that Palpatine's, you know, just this badass Sith Lord. I would guess only the people in the purple robes in his throne room in Return of the Jedi would be the kind of people who would know that. Yeah, that's sort of, I think it, it's different from one source to the next. They kind of played it a little bit fast and loose with with some of the sources. People are like, oh yeah, I've I've heard this rumor that the Emperor was really a dark Jedi or something like that. And Two more comments on, issue, uh, on this issue. Yep. That when the Y-Wings come in to do the bombing, mm-hmm. I, I've always kind of envisioned the Y-Wings bombing very similar to the TIE Bombers. Yeah. Which is just, they drop a bomb. You know, when they dropped them and they all magnetized to the hull of this AT-AT, that was fudging cool. <laughs> I was just like, I, hell yeah. I absolutely love that scene. I'm, I call them AT-ATs. Where do you get AT-AT from? Is it from the 80s toy commercial? From growing up. <laughs> okay, so. What I have do, no what idea you, whether I heard it or just read it or I, I just know I lived it. <laughs> okay, well, what do you call the two-legged walkers then? You call them call, You know, it's interesting. I, you know, you make a good point. I call these ad but I call those ATSTs. I do not call them it's chicken walkers, by the way. Can't stand the chicken walker term. Really? That's what we I, do. It's demeaning. Yeah. ATST and ATAT. Yeah, you make a fair point. You're, you know what? Sooner or later, you're bound to make one. So. It's, a, it's a Midwest thing. We grew up calling them chicken walkers. Yep. <laughs> you all suck. <laughs> no. And the, the other point I was going to make is uh, Shara Bay, I don't think I've said this yet, is smoking hot. She I really think you've is. Probably said that more it's than a, once, but it's, uh, it's a yeah, the, that that scene though, just seeing the the ATAT kind of just rampage in the middle of the city is awesome. That's something you've yeah. never seen before. Going back to the smoking hot thing, which is a little more important, uh, I did forget that towards the end we do get a butt shot of Princess Leia, which is always a bonus. Shring. Notice there's no butt shots of guys in these comics, but there are butt shots of the girls. So bless you, sir. All right, jumping up to issue three. I, again, we, we we have the moment with uh, with Darth Maul. The, again, sort of the thing that surprised me about this was I never liked the Naboo Starfighter. Let me rephrase that. I think the look of it is fine. It never looked like a Star Wars vehicle to me. It was too aerodynamic. It was too sleek. It, it just didn't have the kind of like boxy, like cobbled together out of an old model kit thing like that the X-Wings and the Y-Wings had. I I never cared about those fighters. I just didn't think they worked in the Star Wars universe. But again, this is a case of of doing them right. And it's just the fact that that Greg Rucka gives tension to the story because he puts the characters in danger where it's just three of them going up against an entire Star Destroyer. They've got to destroy these satellites. They're outnumbered by TIE fighters. And again, knowing knowing that Poe Dameron was already born, the only one I wasn't afraid of or afraid for was Princess Leia. The Queen, uh, Saruna, or Shara, either one of them could have died in this chapter. Yeah, I agree. That definitely added some suspense there. And uh, I, I'm totally on board with you on the Naboo fighter. They have always kind of struck me as being like the French Air Force. They're there, but mm. they don't really do anything. <laughs> I mean, all the pilots are wearing these stupid uniforms and goofy hats. <laughs> just, but they they look great here. It's kind of neat to see the clash of two eras, seeing this you know the same fighter jet or whatever from the uh, you know Phantom Menace taking on a Imperial Star Destroyer that really saw its glory in Return of the Jedi. You know, just kind of neat to see the generation gap bridge there. It is sort of like playing the Battlefront video game where you can mix and match eras. <laughs> I actually. Uh, Oddly enough, I'm on board with the way the Naboo stuff looks because when it first came out, I, I did far too much thinking about this. And yes, everything in our Star Wars, you know, the, the original trilogy is cobbled together because 
the New Republic has collapsed, the Empire is there, and everyone is trying to scrabble to survive. Well, if you go back to the Old Republic days, there were some cultures that were still shiny and bright and you know, classy, and some were probably, you know, where you have your middle class and you have your upper class. Naboo was always kind of, at least the city of Thebes, was always the way upper class, like the super rich folks. And if you look at um, Prince uh, Amidala's, Queen Amidala's ship, that silver, super, super sleek, you know, SR-71 Blackbird spy plane looking thing. I hated that thing. But it looked like somebody who had a lot of money, who had the, like, basically space yacht rather than the space freighter. It'd be like comparing, you know, a fancy yacht to a cargo ship. It's kind of hands flying the cargo ship. This guy, you know, she had the, the the super yacht. So their fighters were very much along the same lines. They were the high-end fighters, like you just said, Kyle. They were never used because there was peace on Naboo. They never had to fight. They just had pretty ceremonial ships to fly around for parades and stuff. And so I, I was always okay with it because I felt like they were just ceremonial. And it wasn't until they needed to use them in that movie that they'd ever really seen action. So I was okay with the, their look. Even though I really like the scenes in this, I imagine there's a lot of detractors that say, isn't that just too coincidental that you got Princess Leia on Naboo flying the same fighters from episode one? I could see where somebody could get bent out of shape about it. I don't care. It was a fun ride. You know, these are supposed to be dramatic stories, you know, lots of action, and that's what this was. And it was super fun. I, the battle was fantastic. I really enjoyed seeing both Shara and Leia and the Queen up there during the battle. And uh, the art was just, again, the battle of, with the art was just gorgeous. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And it was nice seeing those establishing shots, like the hangar where the ships fly out. You know, that is exactly the same establishing shot from the movies. It's like, oh, that's nice to see that again. That's kind of cool. It's a cool moment when they go down to that hangar and they have the Darth Maul thing. I was not as enthralled with that as you guys were because half my brain went, that's cool. Unfortunately, I couldn't stop the other half of my brain from going, wait, he didn't do anything there. That spot where she's standing, all he did there was the doors open and he fired up his lightsabers. That's not where he killed Qui-Gon. That's not where he died. He didn't do anything there. Okay, but that was the high point of his character. Yes. He was just I, standing there looking no, cool I understand. and firing and again, up the lightsaber. This, that this was is, his moment. Yeah, this is not a knock on the... Mo- this, is, this is more of a confession of sort of I can't get my brain to mm-hmm. to completely roll with things sometimes. So that's not me knocking the moment. That's me sort of giving you an insight into <laughs> in, into things that I I just I can't always roll with, and I wish I could. Um, which we'll be getting to more of in a second. But yeah, I, you know the use of these ships, especially since they're basically being treated like antiques. You know they're all draped in, under tarps. Basically, it's like they've walked into a museum. That's all pretty cool. I, unfortunately, and I, again, I don't like that I could not go with this, but I have to call BS on Leia piloting that ship because, well, first of all, let me say, I hate that I even have to do this because in principle, I love this. In principle, the idea of these three women getting in these ancient ships at this point, well, not ancient, but completely out-of-date ships, going up against a Star Destroyer with little hope of success and almost no hope of survival, this is awesome in principle. But I can't buy Leia piloting that ship. And and it's not that I don't think, I'm not like Leia can never pilot, but... I have to chalk it up to just missing the opportunity to do things to make me swallow it. Because in all three movies, we saw her in a lot of spaceships. She was never in the pilot seat. Heck, 
just last issue. She's in a transport in a non-combat situation with pre-programmed astronavigation, and she still has someone else piloting. So when in, in a moment where suddenly we need another pilot, she goes, oh, I'm a pilot. That's just bad, right? That's Mary Sue is what that is. She just pulls this out of her butt because suddenly the plot demands that she have this skill. All they had to do to get me to swallow this was if last issue, when Shara got on that transport, if Leia had gone, look, honestly, I know they said you're going to pilot. You're actually just here because I need the company. I'm going to handle the takeoff and landing. The astronavigation is pre-programmed. I just wanted somebody else here. And if they had just shown her piloting then, I could have swallowed this. But the fact that there's been literally not even a hint that she could pilot prior to, oh, we have to go fight and we need another pilot, that's just bad writing. And it that didn't bother me because there is a precedent for it in the old expanded universe. Um, and, and, now, see, now, and now you're right. And that's because this is sort of establishing a, a new world, a new continuity building off of the movies. You're right. We never saw that moment. We never saw her like Han teaching her how to fly the Falcon or anything like that from the movies. Yeah. I guess I sort of, it didn't ping my radar because I was thinking, oh yeah, in Splinter of the Mind's Eye, I think, which was the first expanded, which was the first book that came out after Star Wars before yep. Empire Strikes Back, I think she was flying a Y-Wing with Luke. And, uh, and, and, and I could buy, I, I'm not against the idea of Leia being a pilot, but I, I have to wonder, even though, you know, Disney has said the extended universe is not canon anymore, I have to wonder how much of sort of the residual... Because, I mean, they have to figure the people who are going to read this are the same people who were reading mm -hmm. Expanded Universe. So I have to wonder how much they were either counting on or let themselves get blinded by stuff that they assumed people would still roll with because it was done before. I, because think, as, I think that might have more been the case. Yeah. Was just They forgot what was in the movies and what wasn't because they had built that universe so cohesively so mm -hmm. kind of enmeshed in every little moment that they i mean we've, we've seen that happen in in other comic book franchises after a major reboot they kind of wait wait oh yeah we we needed to re-explain that rule we, we're just sort of taking for granted that everybody knows that even though we sort of contradicted it already but okay, yeah so yeah so and, and and again, I don't I don't like that I can't roll with that because otherwise I I like this, but I just I can't the way that it's written with no precedent out of nowhere she can pilot well enough to help in a dogfight. Ah, bullshit. All right, Kyle, what was your highlight of issue three? Tough to pick. I I mean I really like the the mall moment that we talked about earlier. The whole fight scene is sweet. It's kind of nice to see. Uh, me and Nun show up. Oh, and that was mine. Utter, was utter say, some gibberish. <laughs> I was going to say, when Lando comes to save the day, we get the shot of the bridge, and Nun is in there in the pilot seat with him. He even gets the speaking one. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> oh, man, the, the art is just fantastic. I think that uh, the ad for the uh, Star Wars Express train looks pretty sweet. That is right. uh, tempting. It glows in the dark. <laughs> I bet it does. <laughs> The series has just been great at capturing kind of all aspects of the uh, you know the the Star Wars franchise, I guess, or especially the you know kind of the tone or voice of the original trilogy. There are moments that touch on the the Force stuff, but mostly it's space battles, which mm -hmm. is great to see. 
and can sometimes be difficult to pull off, I think, in the comic book medium, but they do a fantastic job, especially in this issue. What did you guys think of the way that Rucker wrote the the Star Warriors, as Shag said, like the characters like Han and Leia? Oh, like Leia was pretty true. I thought it was a really nice beat there, and I think it was issue two where she's kind of writing letters to the uh, the kin of the deceased. That was a nice touch. It was a nice little character moment. I mean, she had the good, she had the diplomatic stuff down. She had the heartfelt discussions down. I felt like Leia was done pretty well. Han didn't really get a lot to do. His was a. It was the Han from Return of the Jedi. Let's right. put it that way. Right. It was the post Jabba's Palace Han, which is let's go mission gung ho, which really right. isn't Han at all. Right. But that's what he was at the end of Return of the Jedi. Now I will say, as far as their their artwork goes, um, Kyle made me think of something just now when he was talking about the artwork and the faces and stuff. The character, the Star Warriors, are very very on model without really looking photo-referenced. The only one that looks photo-referenced in the whole thing is that one panel of Lando and Ninum. That looks photo-referenced. Yeah. Yeah. But everything else in the book, like there's some shots of Han Solo where he's in action. He looks totally badass. That looks like Harrison Ford, or, or at least what Han Solo is in my mind, without looking photo-referenced. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I applause to, the, uh, to that. So d- how did, did you feel the characters were faithful? You actually you you said it exactly like this Han felt like the Han of Return of the Jedi who was just uh, who who didn't have much of a character unfortunately he was just you know servicing the plot by leading the mission uh, but I thought I thought that was right I mean you kind of mentioned there were there were three other like young adult uh, novels that came out like not Lost Stars but even like younger readers than that mm-hmm. um, and one of them was written by Greg Rucka. I think it's called Smuggler's Run, and it's about uh, a Han and Chewie adventure set, I think, between Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back hmm. uh, at some point during that era. Um, so I, I, I kind of want to read that just because I get the feeling that Greg Rucka knows how to write Han and Chewie. And I, I think like he would he would have a pretty seamless ear for, for their feel. Um, so I kind of want to see a little bit more of them played out from that era when it's not just basically giving out the commanding orders. But I did when, he's like, when he's still the smuggler with the heart of gold, right, right. Um, but I did like what he. I did like what we saw with Leia. I liked that she was given this diplomatic mission, but she still takes action. She's not going to stand behind. She's she's on the front lines. She's putting herself in danger too. That that felt authentic. So. All right. Uh, in chapter four, we get the the moment that we've been waiting for, where. Shara's commanding officer basically fires her and tells her, <laughs> tells her, you are going to fly this A-Wing until you die in the cockpit, and I don't want to see that happen. He's like, so I am putting in your papers. He's like, you've got a family. That's what you've been fighting for, so now you have to live for it. Um, I, I, I like that moment. It's, it's at the beginning, but I, I really thought that was an important moment where he says, yeah, you're done. I don't want to lose you. That's been the whole theme of the series. When do you stop fighting? Yeah, exactly. And then cut two, she does have one more mission, and it's, oh, we get R2. That's BB-8 looks so cute, but they can still floor me with R2 acting like R2. <laughs> this is a total dick move. I mean, <laughs> R2 just randomly goes and gets a pilot, and then, you know, Luke says, let's go for it. It'll be an easy flight. And then the mission's really, she's got to dress up in an Imperial ISB uniform, but it's just like, wow, you're a dick, Luke. But, uh, so this is important, like, we don't know anything about Luke after Return of the Jedi. This is, like, the one time we see him. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I thought there was a lot hinging on this in the way he's depicted, kind of going along with my previous question. And I think I think Rucka does a pretty good job. It's just Luke Luke is a hard character to write, I think, because his journey from one movie to the last is so uh, is so in parts traumatic and parts like spiritual. It's it's this amazing quest that he goes on from like this wide-eyed, optimistic farm boy to uh, like war hero to finding out his father is a war criminal who did, who destroyed everything about his life to having to save his father and then having this entire like spiritual quest where this this whole philosophy and way of life is resting on his shoulders. How do you write that character? That's like that's like Superman level of not being human and still having to feel the humanity for the character. So what you're saying is they should take all of his force powers away and give him a buzz cut and make him ride a motorcycle? At least, yes. (laughs) Oh, okay. Took me a minute. I'm like, where is he going with this? I get it now. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. After Return of the Jedi, he buzzes off his his hair and just gets on a speeder bike and never looks back. Hey, at least he's banging Wonder Woman then, though. That's something. (laughs) It's uh... (laughs) a... I mean, it's, it's very hard to do because, I mean, the, the story of Luke, it's been said, I'm not the first one to say this. I mean, it is a mythological story. He is a mythological character at this point. He is almost a Hercules type of journey. Uh, Crossed uh, with Jesus. Okay. Like, um, I'm not going to argue that. And uh, it, it is a mythological, a hero's journey in a myth story. And you're right. It's How do you slot that in? Especially at the end of it. I think this would be the most difficult time to Luke. Like, I think it'd be. It wouldn't be as hard to write a Luke story in between the you know, episode. I'm not going to say that between Star Wars and Empire or Empire and Return, mm-hmm. simply because you know the beginning and the end point. Right here, it's yeah. What does the character become? And you know, there's something else to, we haven't touched on here, but we talked about it before we started. Is as far as the journey to the Force Awakens goes, there's very little usage of the Star Warriors, mm-hmm. like the book after aftermath. Um, I'm not going to say who. But only one or two of the Star Wars appear, and it's only in a couple of pages. Right. Um, Lost Stars, I don't think they're in it at all, are they? Uh, I've read the first half, and they, they're not, no. Okay. And then, now, those other books, the, the other ones you said that are even for younger readers, do involve those characters. But unless I'm mistaken, I think all those stories take place before Return of the Jedi? I believe there is some kind of framing device that takes place around the time of The Force Awakens, but it's the characters calling back to a story beforehand. So if you want to find out what happens to the Star Warriors after Return of the Jedi, this is pretty much it. Yeah. Uh, At least until Force Awakens comes out. This is pretty much your only chance. Yeah. I really like this moment, this sort of quiet moment when Shara first meets Luke face-to-face, and he he remembers, he's like, do I know you? And she's like, well, we almost met when I almost shot you down after Andor, like, calling back to the first <laughs> issue. And he kind of has this moment where he's like, I send R2 to find me a pilot, and here you are. Interesting. And yeah. it's sort of, it, it kind of goes into the, that what you were talking about. Like, these people are connected to the Star Warriors. And just just that little thing gives them a little bit more legitimacy than like uh, than the main characters of Aftermath, I would say. Who yeah don't have any kind of interaction with the principal characters that we know and love. But just the fact that, like, he's like, yeah, maybe maybe this is the will of the Force. Maybe there's some destiny that we had this chance encounter before, and now here you are when I need a pilot. We also mentioned that she flew Leia. 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he's drawing all the web together there, yeah. Right. His plan is not an easy mission. They're going into a highly fortified imperial mystery secret like police laboratory, and she's got to impersonate uh, an imperial officer. Now, this is Greg Rucka doing a little world building within his own because the character that she is impersonating is a character from the Smuggler's Run, his book for the, the young readers. Really? Yeah, this... this uh, ah. which, which character? What's the name of Al- the Alicia something or other? Alicia Beck, yeah. That's the name of one of the characters, I think maybe like the main villain from Greg Rucka's other story. Because there's a reference to that. There's a giveaway that as soon as they arrive, the commander kind of spots that, nope, she's not who she says she is because Alicia Beck has a cybernetic eye or something. And when all hell breaks loose, we see Luke use the Force. Like a boss. He, this is this is like what we see Vader use when he's just cutting loose. He is throwing bodies around. He's throwing droids around. He's. Uh, I love the stormtrooper Gatling gun that he wastes. Yeah. Just to see the way it's drawn. When Luke first unveils the lightsaber, it's a sort of full page splash across two pages. But they they've got some other panels in there. But he is the huge central focus. I mean, it's it's an enormous picture of him in a battle stance with the lightsaber. It's a big reveal. It's great. And then the next page, when the or a couple pages later, when the stormtroopers pull out the Gatling guns, the, the angle of the Gatling guns is like, holy crap, that thing's freaking huge. Yeah. And all he has to do is wave his hand, and it spins in the wrong direction. Yep. <laughs> they, they hardly ever get a shot off or something. Yep. And at the end, the stormtroopers all throw thermal detonators, and he says, yep, that was a stupid idea, and throws them back. <laughs> that was vicious, dude. He's just like, that's the last mistake you're ever going to make. Ba-boom! Like, holy crap. Was that... I, I that hope we get to point? see that. I hope we get to see something like that in the new movie, because we've never really seen Jedi just lay waste to soldiers. Well, that, I mean, outside of battle droids. That's that's where I'm going with this. If anybody played the old role-playing game, I mean, would he have just earned a dark side point for that? Because he, willful, he willfully murdered all those guys. They were enemy combatants. Yeah, but that was pretty... I mean, he could have done anything with those thermal detonators. To return them to sender and intentionally let them all die and even have a snarky line as he does it? I mean, there's some some dark side going on. His snarky line actually reminded me of what he says to Jabba the Hutt right before they're sent on the sail barge. True. Be the last mistake you ever make. But he also didn't murder Jabba... Purposefully, the only people he killed in that one were people that were trying to kill him at that moment, like an immediate defense, like you know, fighting them with the lightsaber. Here, he he could have taken the thermal detonators and thrown them out the window. He Here, he blew, he blows blew, them up. He blew up Jabba's sail barge. If Leia hadn't strangled him, he still would have died on the barge. Yeah, okay. yeah. He gives him the ultimatum: let him go, let us go, or die. I, I think we'll I think we'll leave it to the uh, to the listeners to tell us what they think. Is would he have earned in, in role playing terms a dark side point for this action? No one knows about role-playing because your podcast is supposed to talk about that and never puts out episodes. You know, I, 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 a long time ago, I actually had a Star Wars role-playing game podcast on the docket and even produced, like, the theme song and everything, and it just never came to be. Hey, Shag, remember back in, like, February when we spent an hour talking about the Star Wars role-playing game for this podcast and I never released the episode? Did we really? Yes. It never came out? And I never put that in an episode. You dick. I still got like an hour of us talking about role-playing game stuff. Put that shit out. (laughs) This one I've got two problems with. The first is Luke. Okay. Now, Luke is not written bad. 
However, Luke is written very, very safe. And by that, I mean, if we look back at Leia and that moment that I talked about that I loved with her writing those condolences, that was a side of her that we had never seen before, but we always knew must have existed because, you know, before she had to just flat out obviously go with the rebels, she was part of the political process. So she is a, she's a diplomat. She has that aspect to her. We just never got to see it because she was always in combat situations. So... Again, much like showing me what Green Group was doing, by showing me that side of Leia, you're showing me something that, I, that I've kind of known on some level must be the case and, and she must do, but I've never gotten to see. And that's kind of nice. Now, we don't get anything like that with Han, but Han basically only cameos in this from time to time. That we get extended time with Luke and they don't have the guts to do anything like that with him. I feel like... Rucka was either terrified of writing Luke wrong or of accidentally giving away stuff that we're not supposed to know before we go and see Force Awakens, like in terms of how things may have changed for him, Mm -hmm. that he just wrote him as safe as possible, as keep him on the exact same way we he was characterized in Return of the Jedi. I mean, to the point that he is regurgitating exact lines that either he said or were said to him by other characters. And it's it just frustrated me because when we saw what was written with Leia, we got new aspects and layers, and we get none of that with Luke. Because I'm such a fan of Greg Rucker's writing, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. So I'm wondering it, how much of that was his choice or how much of it was him being hamstrung by the editorial team or by Lucasfilm. Oh, I could saying, abso- this is the this is all we're going to give you of Luke so that kind of limited how he could depict Luke. I could buy that that there's a very good chance that this was mandated. So mm-hmm. this may not be his fault, but it's it's still a problem for me. I remember you pointing out at, at one point I think it was when we were talking lightsaber fights mm-hmm. that you brought up Jedi. You said Jedi is basically only Luke's story. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think there's some truth to that. And the thing is, is that Jedi wraps up his story and his journey so completely that there really is nowhere left to go with him. There are places left to go with Han and Leia, particularly relative to each other, because they're about to you know, start a relationship and a whole new life. But where do you go with Luke after that? Because he really has completed this journey. I mean, very fully, especially given how heavily the emphasis is on him in that last movie. And I think that is part of the reason why he has been absent for so much of what they're calling the journey to the Force Awakens. Part of it is mm-hmm. the, the trailers and the, the advertisements for the movie, but also, as we talked about, in the other media, in the other books that have come out, in in like short stories and stuff like that, in, in the comics... We hardly ever see him. This is really the only time where we get a, a good glimpse of him doing stuff. So I, I think maybe subconsciously or very overtly, Lucasfilm kind of realized it, that the day after for him can't just be a normal day. We need to give him some time to breathe and take him off the board for a little while. Yeah. Because for him to return to the galactic scene, the the major story, is going to require something pretty significant. And I think that's the point of the movie, The Force Awakens. Um, but I don't want to get into speculation. I already released a new speculation about what I think he has been doing. Yep, I, 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 uh, I won't be listening to that. <laughs> that's fine. 
<laughs> okay, let's talk about what the mission was that they were actually going to retrieve. Um, they find these two saplings or samples of a tree that was supposedly growing in the heart of the Jedi Temple. Do either of you... Was this just an invention for the story? I could not find any reference to a tree in the Jedi Temple. Was that... Like, Kyle, did you ever see anything like that in the Clone Wars no, cartoon? Oh, no, not that I remember. And I have not seen a comprehensive viewing of all the Clone Wars. I really need to go pick out that new Blu-ray or DVD set. They released them all in one big set for like 80 bucks. I need to look into that. But uh, I was trying to, I was racking my brain thinking about if that had ever shown up in the prequels as well. And I never got around to rewatching them before we recorded. But I don't remember that at all. Here's the deal. When episode one came out, I read a lot about, like, leading up to, at least until I saw the film, uh, I read a lot about the Jedi and the buildup and everything. And the minute I read that about the tree, my reaction was actually to go, oh, yeah, that's right, the tree. And now that you say that, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, maybe I just made that crap up in my head. <laughs> um, I really don't know. It, it seems like it. It seems very possible. I do think, though, this is a throwaway thing for this story. I don't think we're going to see these trees again. I don't think it's going to be a critical point of the other movie, simply because, again, they, they would almost force the viewer of the movie to know about the comics, and they're not going to do that. Right. Mm, it, it's, I don't, it's like I don't think so. I think, it, it's a Mac, I think it's a MacGuffin. And can I speculate something that goes on one of Ryan's speculations? So I don't know if... Uh You've listened sure. to all those. Unless you got it. something, ba- I mean, is it based in fact or is this just your speculation? No, it's all right, well, my, my fact is Ryan's speculation. All right, I'm taking my headphones off. Put some in the instant message when you're ready for me. Don't make me destroy you. That's all I heard was. Die. I was gonna say all I heard was Darth Vader's Luke's dad and Leia's his sister. But anyway, <laughs> okay. Ryan shot down my speculation, so I'm probably pretty far off base. Well, I will say one thing, and maybe you talked about it a second ago, but the, the last panel where they have the tree buried. At the house, Wikipedia states what I suspected that this is Yavin Four. Could Wikipedia just be making an assumption based on the the footnote was the comic? It wasn't footnoted to an interview or anything, so they might just be making the same assumption I was. My first thought was no, it could just be it could be any planet. When I first saw it, I was like, okay, it's got the temples that look sort of like the temples on Yavin Four. It's got what looks like a big planet in the background that looks like Yavin Four. Uh, it's it's very familiar imagery, but then I was like, no, I'm probably just jumping to that conclusion. It could be anything. But then I remembered, I think Oscar Isaac might have said something to the effect that, like, he thinks his character was born on Yavin 4 or something. Like, he was even, up there. Because, yeah. because I think they filmed, I think those temples were, like, in, in Guatemala or something where he was born. So I think, like, he was even hmm. trying to make that connection or something. So, Interesting. I, I, again, I don't know if that will ever come up in the movies, if that'll have any significance. I kind of doubt it, but maybe. So. And now, if there's two trees, and if you cover the speculation, sorry, but you know, Luke said one is, is spoken for, and he means himself. Mm-hmm. You know, friggin' planet on Tatooine or something? Dude, it'll friggin' die. I hope he finds a good place for it. I'm just saying. If, Couple- I mean, if we see it, I think we'll. I don't know. I, I don't even want to speculate. I don't think we're going to see it. It just seems like too big of a storyline that would be too dependent on this is my take on it. But a um, couple different thoughts. One is – Well, I disagree because I think you could just cover it easily in the in the opening crawl. I suppose so. Kylo I mean, Ren is trying to steal the, the Jedi tree recovered by Luke following the battle end or whatever. If the plot – if one of the main plot points of the story is a race for the Jedi tree, I have a lot more concerns about this trilogy than I originally did. Because okay. that sounds like something out of an Ewok movie. <laughs> okay, but let me throw this Don't out Don't sing that damn song. 
<laughs> Not the cartoon, the movies, the, the live action movies. Okay, yeah. but what if they're carrying around the sapling for a good chunk of the movie? And in Shut the, up, I saw the Clone Wars movie, I hated it. No, no, no. <laughs> in the last act, we hear some Michael Jackson playing some Jackson 5 and the tree starts dancing. <laughs> <laughs> that could work, that could work, okay. <laughs> Uh, and then all of Patton Oswalt's dreams come true because that is your Star Wars Marvel Universe uh, crossover. That is true. That is true. I like that they live in a double wide on Yavin 4. That's <laughs> the Damarons are the trailer trash of the Star Wars Universe. Uh, you said you had two problems with the issue. What was the other one? Uh, the trees. As plot devices or? Um, again, it's more of a nuts and bolts thing, a bit like Leia piloting the ship. I just... I can't roll with with two things about this. Okay, first of all, you're telling me, okay, the Force is strong with the trees. Okay, I can kind of go with that insofar as if we're going with original trilogy definition. It's an energy field created by all living things. Fine, trees are living things. They can be strong with the Force. But what does that mean? What does it mean for a tree to be strong with the force? Because what we've seen for anyone who's force sensitive, you know, it's it's this, you know, precognition, telekinesis, telepathy, reflexes, whatever. So, but you know, trees—they're not sentient; they have no agency. So, what what does being strong with the force mean for a tree? That's like me saying my car is staunchly conservative. <laughs> you know, I, I I'm attributing a, a trait to it that has no business being attributed to an inanimate object and it has no meaning unless you explain it more which they don't so that's the first thing uh i okay i agree with that um and i do want to point out because i don't think shag and kyle and i ever addressed it because i didn't know it at the time but i'll mention it here uh, i did a little bit of background research and i found out that these trees or are supposedly samples of a tree that yoda planted in the heart of the jedi temple in, I believe, the sixth and final season of the Clone Wars animated series. Now, I never watched that series. Well, I, I saw the first season, maybe part of the second season. Um, so I had no idea what this tree is. This isn't a major spoiler or speculation. This is just something that kind of that we talked about. Kyle thinks that the trees will be a plot point of The Force Awakens. I do not. I don't think we will ever see these trees again, in the in, at least in the movies. But um, I think the point of this mission of recovering these trees tells us where Luke, what Luke does after Return of the Jedi, that he is on a mission to recover Jedi or Force artifacts. And I think and, this is just one example of that. And honestly, that part I'm fine with. But and so what Luke's – I un, I get Luke's interest in these things. Makes perfect sense. Why did the Emperor keep these? Good question. Um, I, I, I can't think of a sim, single reason. Palpatine is not a sentimental guy, and unless he can weaponize these, and I don't see how that works because, you know, they may be strong with the Force, but the Force is non-transferable so far as we're aware. It's not like he can sap the Force out of it and, and give it to something else. So why would he keep these? That's the part that I'm like, I, and again, there may be a reason but because they didn't give it to me, and I can't come up with one of my own, I'm forced to, again, kind of call BS. <laughs> yeah, in, in the Lando comic book series uh, that was published recently, um, which I hope to be covering on a future episode with Mike Gillis, there was this, this plotline involving 
the emperor's like personal yacht, his secret private yacht that happens to include a treasure trove of ancient Jedi and Sith relics, suggesting that he actually is very sentimental, that he has been hoarding these objects that were powerful in the Force, maybe to make himself more powerful? I don't know. So, maybe... I mean, I, I guess I could buy that, but again, within With... solely within the context of this comic book, I'm given no reason why he would keep these things true that's a good point. um because because it's not something it's not um a characteristic we ever saw of him in the movies mm-hmm. and so again much like leia being able to pilot the ship you've got to reference it somewhere as to why he would keep these things around because there isn't i can't come up with oh well obviously it's this mm-hmm. kind of answer for these things right and, and in fact the uh the chief of security for this laboratory says as much. It's like, we don't know why these are here. We don't know why he collected these. Maybe you can give us some answers. Um, yeah. They're the MacGuffin. Um, I, I think really just it was just an excuse to for you know Rucka and Shishetto to tell this one little story of, okay, we, we need to see a little bit of Luke to know that he's okay. And I think that's, yeah. that's just what this was. Yeah, and I'm sure it was. Now, sort of coming back to what the polite disagreement uh, you and Shag and Kyle got into about whether or not the trees will show up in the films. I would say, I would actually give 50-50 odds on the trees showing up but not being remarked upon. Hmm. Like, ju- just showing up and just being there. So it becomes an Easter egg for people who've read the comics. I don't see them being a major plot point in the films. However... If they decided they did need to be a major plot point, I think it's very easily covered because you and Shag sort of made the argument, well, then it depends on people reading the comic. And I don't think it would. All you need is one line saying, these used to be in the original Jedi Temple, Luke recovered them. That's all you need. Exactly how he recovered them from where and with whom won't matter going into The Force Awakens. So while I don't believe they will be a major plot point, if they are still doesn't require you to read the comic books. It be, it, the comic book then just because becomes the fuller story of how he acquired these. In the movie, you just need one line. You know what just occurred to me? And like this is kind of going into weird speculative territory, and I'm not... This isn't official speculative. This is just a, a flight of fancy that my brain undertook when you said that. Go for it. Okay, remember on Dagobah, the dark side cave that Luke goes into and where he has this vision where he fights Darth Vader? Yep. The expanded universe delved into that a whole lot and gave reasons for why that particular location was strong with the dark side, why Luke had the, his vision there of all places, something like that. Now they don't—they never had to explain that in the movies. It didn't matter. But maybe, maybe wherever Luke is when we find him, he has this tree or something like that, and maybe there there will just be something about that scene that. Im- implies some sort of test for Mm -hmm. whatever new character we meet who happens to be Force-sensitive, whether it's Rey or Finn or anybody else, that that there's some sort of vision like that that could be attributed to the tree. And maybe it's not overtly referenced, like you said. Maybe it's just something where they're underneath this tree and they have this weird kind of Force hallucination. And 
that that could be it, and they could never say that it was the tree that did that. But if you've read this story, then maybe you do know, and it, it could just be that kind of Easter egg. I, I have I no idea them, if we'll see I, something like that in episode well, see, seven could, or, or even I, episode eight. But I could see them doing that kind of thing. And actually, what you made me think: of, Did you ever watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Uh, the first couple seasons. Okay, well, in the very last season, they uncover this weapon, this sort of red scythe. Okay. Um, and within the context of the show, they just find it like, this is a Slayer artifact. Cool, we'll use this. Awesome. But there was a comic book that had come out, I think, shortly before that final season aired, actually set in the future, called Frey, where that scythe featured heavily. Okay. So anyone who had read that comic book... And watching that last season, when that scythe showed up, you went, oh, yes! And, you know, people watching it who didn't read the comic were just like, oh, that's a cool thing. I'm sure that'll be helpful. But, you know, people who knew and caught it, it just meant more. But it still worked on in and of itself. So, yeah, like an, an Easter egg, essentially. Yeah. So. Okay, so there was a, a very specific reason that I wanted Nathaniel to be on this podcast because this was a question that he brought up um, or, or, uh, like months ago when we were talking about this. But it's kind what, of an- what, what I just heard, uh, Kyle, was that he didn't give a crap if we showed. All he really wanted was Nathaniel for this podcast. Is that, is that what you just heard? No, because I, heard, I know what Nathaniel's thoughts on this topic are. I wanted to hear your thoughts. Nice save. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. I just pulled that out of my ass. Um, so uh, thinking about this and thinking about Star Wars Aftermath and all of these little stories that we will be getting about the, the kind of further, the never-ending war, does that in any way invalidate the meaningfulness of Return of the Jedi? Does the, mm. does the fact that the Empire wasn't defeated, does that color the way you look at that movie in any way? Does it lose its sense of finality? Wow, that's a great question. Because if you think about it, the Rebellion had been around for about probably 20 years by the time Return of the Jedi came around. Because it started when Luke was born, pretty much formally. You know, when, when uh, Bale started the, the rebellion, mm-hmm. right? And it ended with Luke being about 21 years old, probably. So it was about 20 years for the rebellion. So we're now, what, 30 years in the future? 30 years after return, and the friggin' thing's still going. At least it appears that's the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless the New Order or something new that rose up. Well, the sides have different names, but they seem to be the same sides. Yeah. So... Yeah, kind of, kind of off the top of my head. Yeah, it does kind of not invalidate, but just minimalize their victory at uh, at at Endor. Maybe it was just one battle and some you know really tasty cannibalism, and that's all it really was. Is because uh, just yeah. Wow, I hadn't thought about that. I'm blown away, Kyle. You talk for a minute. I gotta put my thoughts together here. Yeah, I'm kind of shocked by it, but I guess. Well, because the, specifically, well, specifically, I think one of the points that Nathaniel was making when I talked to him months ago was that was that the Return of the Jedi was a great place to end the story because the heroes won and all the bad guys died, and it wrapped up really the lo- there weren't any loose ends dangling at the end of that. I mean, there were there were questions that you could have for the characters, but nothing that was really pressing that needed to be addressed. There wasn't like a hook. That was, that was, the ending for the Star Wars saga, as far as we knew. 
Yeah, and, I'm I'm trying to think of it. I guess the way I would one with their new team essentially being called the Resistance instead mm-hmm. of the Rebellion makes me think of maybe they're more in control and they're resisting the spread of this new order. Mm-hmm. So they establish some sort of dominance or control, you know, a new galactic senate. And, you know, there's always going to be places that don't want to fall in line with the new government, and that gives rise to, you know, maybe maybe the new order still is relatively new, Mm -hmm. you know, 30 years later. Maybe we had 20 years of, you know, uneasy peace of this new government getting into place before the new order sprung up. I guess, uh, speaking on the finality, if you weren't privy to the events inside the clone room or the throne room. <laughs> clone room? Well, clone room, yeah. yeah. You, you no, might be more you right than you think. We'll have to see. <laughs> yeah. If we weren't privy to the events inside the throne room, how is the blowing up of the second Death Star any different than the blowing up of the first Death Star? Right here in this comic, you know, they're saying that that's propaganda that the Emperor has actually fallen. How does the the rest of the world, you know, I go back to the, the Return of the Jedi special edition, you know, you're seeing... Everybody celebrate at the end to whatever new song they came up with. Um, I like that song. I refuse to watch the Return of the Jedi special edition just because of Jedi Rocks. But I, I understand that. I fast forward through it. I I have the the wide vision two disc DVD, so I just watch the three theatrical cut. But um, you know, for someone not tied to the rebellion, say living on Tatooine, how is the blowing up of the second Death Star any different than the first one? I would say that when you take the Emperor and Vader out of the fight, the yes, second Death Star. How, how does anybody know that that happened? Well, no, where I'm going with that is even if they don't get that news bulletin, um, I th- and, and some of this is coming from my expanded universe exposure, but I, I do believe that the Emperor's dark powers helped him keep the Empire together. I agree like, with yeah. that. I, I, I like that idea. Yeah, um, that's true. And without him there... And using the dark side to keep it together and keep the fear going, it does. The military machine starts to fall apart, and when the military machine starts to fall apart, the people start to notice because they notice. You know, they 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 can tell when that's happening. It's sort of like when the police lose control of the city, uh, people can you know there's more riots. So I I think that would be the only indication. But yeah, they're not going to get it on the hollow net. You're right. Well, Nathaniel from <laughs> the ghost of Nathaniel. Has has posted a, a a great question that I'm now finding myself wondering about. I and now, to some extent, the New Republic expanded universe stuff did address this because they acknowledged the Empire didn't just go away. It took five years to sort of rally enough and put the Empire on the back foot. And I think that's why. I think part of it, the the old expanded universe canon, was a little bit. I, I feel a little bit more successful or just a little bit more palatable in the way they approached it because the first time we saw further Star Wars adventures in that continuity was the Thrawn trilogy written by Timothy Zahn. That was five years later. Mm-hmm. And we knew, okay, the battle had still been going on, but really the Empire was like licking its wounds at the far edge of space and it took the emergence of Thrawn to bring them back to the spot where they were a credible threat. And I think that distance, knowing that there was a five-year gap where the good guys had won and this is the bad guys' counterattack, but it, there, was, there was enough of a breathing space where that felt 
okay, that was a good enough time where we can allow a new threat to kind of rise. And then, yeah, later on they would fill in the gaps and they started kind of filling in those five years with more stories about the X-Wing fighters and the truce at Bakura. Um, but there, there was more. So I think if you're just following the movies, I think I don't think the Force Awakens will undercut Return of the Jedi because you'll have an even greater gap of 30 years where now you've got these new threats. But I think stories like this, as much as I really enjoyed the heck out of the series, stories like this and like Aftermath feel like it's just the next day and you're still fighting the same fights. It's like the next day, okay, now we're just going to tell the same story as the Battle of Endor, except we don't have the stakes, because the threat of the Death Star isn't there, the threat of the Emperor and Darth Vader aren't there, we're just going to focus on a random Star Destroyer here, and a random group of Special Forces here, and they're just doing more of the same. And... Again, this was an entertaining story. I really liked a lot of the emotional character beats of this. But I kind of feel like I don't care about... I, I, it sort of took me reading this and reading Aftermath to realize I don't care about the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Endor. I want to find out where Han, Leia, and Luke are ten years later. Like, I, I want to know more of that 30-year gap than just what happened five minutes after they got out of uh, five years after the, or five minutes after the second death star exploded. Well, I'm sure on December 19th, you'll be able to get all kinds of books or stories that it's, will fill that in for you. And that's what Lucasfilm and Del Rey and all of their publishing subsidiaries can spend the next 10 years doing is yep. filling in that continuity. Once we know where Luke Han and Leia are now. I want to thank you for sort of expressing my view, which I don't think is one you entirely share, um, to to the other guys as well as you did. Um, and and I th- actually think you guys sort of hit on something a little bit, which is I, I think uh, the best sort of salve to my issues of, you know, they won but the fight's still going on is, is to insert some time, mm-hmm. uh, which is part of why this series starts going downhill for me is like, well, we're coming right off the Battle of Endor and we still haven't won. But, you know, I do want there to be time. I want there to be a time, a period of, I would like it to be a few years, but a period where they're doing stuff like this, where it's negotiations, will you help us rebuild the Senate, whatever. I want that stuff to happen, but I don't necessarily want to see it because it's kind of boring. Right. (laughs) That makes it, I want it to happen because I feel it's important to have that breathing room, but it's, called Star Wars. I'm here for the war in the stars. Right. And when the prequels were coming out, I thought one of the things that made me excited in my head was this idea that, oh, we're going to see the Emperor coming into power. We're going to see how he manipulated all of these senators and how he he took control of the government and he wrangled all of this stuff together and just kind of took over. I was like, that is going to be awesome. Until you watch it and it's like, you know, I mean, I, I get that it was done in a very lackluster, poor fashion by somebody who probably isn't interested in politics and doesn't know how to write interesting politics. But, but I, I think mean, I think even if Aaron Sorkin had written that aspect of the prequels, as snappy as the dialogue might sound, it's not going to be Star Wars. Exactly. I mean, the, the thing is that the, all that political manipulation or whatever, okay, that happened, and it's important that it happened, but... When the when the hook is space battles and laser swords, this isn't what we want to spend our time seeing. Right. 
and and I guess sort of coming back to the the function of time thing, I and, and I think that's the there'll be some more specific stuff that'll bring up, but that's the other thing that as the series went on, just this feeling of this just this fight just isn't ending. And, you know, obviously, uh, until we see Force Awakens, we won't know for sure really what the deal with the First Order of the Resistance is. Obviously, something has happened because they're not even using the same name. So something has happened. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, what this book sort of reinforces is the idea that the fight just never stopped. But the thing is, even if there was a period of peace, if the First Order is basically still just the Empire... That's still going to have that problem for me where it takes away from the victory at the end of Jedi. Because, like, think if – and, again, we can have war again. I'd like a period of peace, but to make the real world parallel, because um, obviously the Empire is based somewhat off the Nazis. So 1940s, in reality, we fight the Nazis. We defeat the Nazis. Within the next decade, you know, we're in the 50s. We're in the Korean War. But if in the Korean War we were fighting the Nazis again, that kind of would have taken the joy out of V-Day a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are going to have to find some sort of explanation in the movie for what this First Order is. Has it been a constant war? Or has it been a sort of cold war? Has the First Order been rebuilding in secret? More like Germany after World War One? That's that's kind of what I'm hoping for. I, unfortunately, I, the the vibe we get off this that's not so certain. I mean, the series obviously ends on a note that feels like, ha, huh, maybe now there's peace, but it's really just for this family. Mm-hmm. So, for all we know, the the fight is still ongoing elsewhere. Yeah, it's almost like this story. Like if you look at Star Wars: Empire and Return, those are you know there's a lot of myth building, like we said with Luke, the mythological journey of the hero, but there's also a bit of a war story there. Um, not a hard-boiled war story, but there's it's a war. It's a war, and it tells you the story and the progression of the war. Whereas this story is almost like I don't want to say the war is secondary, but the real thread that goes through this is what Greg Rucker wrote was when do you stop fighting? The war isn't the main focus; it's the character. And when is she? When does she have to? When does she have to finally quit fighting? So it's it's sort of taking it from a more personal angle, I would think, at least the war side of it. Because Luke and all them, they they were tied in with their own personal journeys, but their personal journey was not tied directly to the war. Right. Whereas her personal journey is tied directly to the war. So I think it's just Greg trying to tell a different story. But, I mean, I I see what you mean. It is like, you're right, you wake up the next day and it's more of the same. Any other thoughts about the series as a whole? Um... I, d- I don't think so. I mean, li- like I said, I know I've been ragging on it, but I think that's largely just because I felt the need to sort of provide, uh, you know, the perspective of somebody who was never engrossed in the expanded universe um, and really just goes by the movies. And, you know, I I didn't want to spend my time reiterating all the stuff that you guys pointed out, which was good because I agree with a lot of it. There was just these other things that you guys just kind of rolled with that I couldn't. So I know I came across as really negative. I did enjoy reading this. I think it started strongest and got weaker as it went along. Not necessarily because you know the story got worse, but just because the things that I had a harder time dealing with all came on the back end. Did you guys have any final thoughts about this series before we go? Pick it up. It's probably going to be in trade here shortly. Actually, it is, I think, in, in November. Already? This month, I think it's supposed to come out in trade paperback. They're rushing it. And you might even be able to find that at Walmart if you don't have a comic shop close to you. I, I saw the first uh, trade for the Marvel Star Wars ongoing series. That was at my local Walmart. 
Cool. They don't have oh, any wow. packs of the freaking Force Awakens cards, but they have that. <laughs> I, I, went, I stopped by a Walmart specifically looking. I was like, I wonder if those have any Star Wars cards. I can talk to Kyle about those, and they didn't have them. I bought a pack of those in a drugstore. So apparently they're out there quite a bit. Uh, I think it's a great story. I think it's well worth picking up whether you get the soft cover or whether you get the individual issues, you get a, a collection, whether you get it digitally, whatever. I think you're going to enjoy it. If you love Star Wars, you, if you love the classic trilogy, you're, I think you're going to enjoy the heck out of this thing, even though we pretty much spoiled everything for you. Kyle Benning, where can people find you online or where can they hear your thoughts about Star Wars, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, comics, whatever? Uh, my blog page, King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, blogspot.com. That's where all my stuff that I put out is on one single feed, and that's kind of the, the homepage there. Right now, I've only been doing two to three episodes a week, and they've been Ninja Turtles or Star Wars. Or you can go to Facebook and just look for King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, or facebook.com slash comics retro review. It's the direct link. All right. Well, Nathaniel, where can our listeners find you online or if they want to hear your other thoughts about whatever? Um, basically look for Council of Geeks. Uh, you can find Council of Geeks on Twitter, on YouTube, which gets the most frequent updates with my uh, ramblings. It's a lot of Doctor Who stuff right now because we're in the new season. There is also the Council of Geeks podcast available on iTunes and Stitcher. That podcast feed is home to 90s Comics Retrial, where I go through my comics from the 90s and see if they're as bad as everybody says. Usually they are. But that's, that's, sort, of, that's sort of the main things. The podcast, um, Twitter, which I'm getting better about, and, uh, and YouTube. All right, great. Well, thank you very much for being part of the show again, and I know we will have you on again in the future. Oh, you, you better believe it. I, I've still got that blackmail material on you. <laughs> I got you a ticket for opening night. <laughs> I don't know. You'll, you'll, you'll work it off. We'll, we'll, we'll negotiate. <laughs> And Shag, where can people find you if they want to hear your thoughts about comics or role-playing games? Or have <laughs> <laughs> got a few different places you can check me out. Um, probably the best place to find me is the Secret Origins podcast. It's at <laughs> secretorigins.wordpress.com. Uh, I host that on a, a weekly basis. Uh, you may have heard Ryan on the show a couple of times. I had him on to talk with me about Dr. Midnight and Firestorm. I also do a Star Wars podcast called Dead Both and Spies. I've been on, uh, I had Ryan on there to talk about the X-Wing books and the role-playing games, which you've never heard, and, uh, and this comic. And then I also do a Black Canary podcast called uh, Flowers to Fish Knots. So, check it out. Oh, this is going to end up being a great conversation between Kyle and I when the episode comes out. <laughs> hey, don't, don't, don't forget about that uh, Ultraverse podcast. <laughs> Shut your mouth! I, I pod-faded one... Okay, two projects in my life. One was Ultraverse podcast, one is Hero Points, and you guys have brought up both of those damn things on this show. Thank you so much. Put some lemon and some salt in those wounds. All right, guys. Thank you very much for being part of this episode of Dead Bath and Spies. Uh, always love for always, uh, always love talking to you guys, and uh, really looking forward. Uh, obviously, I really look forward to the movie, and I look forward to talking to you guys more before and after the movie. So may the force be with you. May the force be with you. And yeah, we need to talk about that C three PO comic when it comes out. <laughs> We will. Red, we talk about. red arm? What the funk? Move the fleet away from the Death Star.
On the subject of Star Wars comics, I wanted to mention that I have finally started reading the original Marvel Star Wars series from the 70s. I'm about seven or eight issues in, and I'm loving it every bit as much as I love the movies. The comic is so, so good. And the crazy thing is, nobody ever recommended this comic to me. Not Rob Kelly, not Greg Arujo, not Shag. Nobody ever told me to read Marvel's Star Wars. Certainly not months ago. You can imagine how disappointed I am in all of my friends for dropping the ball here. Okay, one final note. This long and kind of crazy episode is going out to Kyle Benning, who jacked up his knee a couple of days ago. He's been hobbled a little, and I feel his pain. I really do, because I had a similar injury about two years ago. So send Kyle some well wishes if you can. Give him some positive force vibes for the holiday season. Feedback for the show can be left at the blog page, deadboffinspies.blogspot.com, or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash deadboffinspies. Deadboffinspies is not affiliated with Lucasfilm or Walt Disney Company, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and happy Black Friday.